The story is told about a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife was talking with a service station attendant. She had dated the attendant before she had met her husband. The CEO got in the car, and the two drove in silence. He was feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke. I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you were thinking, you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO and not him, a service station attendant. No, she said. I was thinking, if I'd married him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO and you'd be a service station attendant. <laughs> That's great. This is a rather humorous illustration, but there's a whole lot more truth in it than we might realize. First, the husband is obviously proud of his lucrative career, which is evidenced by the lack of modesty he displays in comparing himself to the service station attendant. But pride is one of those things that isn't satisfied with a mere comparison. It always aims for more. Thus, the arrogant husband wasn't content to simply measure his own financial success by the other guy's lesser job. He took it a step further, and being puffed up in his own imagination, he voiced how lucky his wife was to be married to such an exemplary specimen of a man as he was. Well, not to be outdone, his witty wife soundly put him in his place by crediting herself with his success. Of course, why not? In her own mind, she imagined herself to be such a marvelous model of a helpmeet that she could inspire achievement with whomever she was with. So we seriously have some problems going on, do we not? <laughs> the bottom line is that they both viewed themselves as bringing the greatest value to their marriage. Sadly, this is the way many people enter into marriage. Perhaps it isn't intentional, and I would say especially in Christian circles, we don't even realize that's what we're doing. But our natural default position apart from Christ is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. One of the beautiful aspects of marriage is that God uses it to refine us and humble us, showing us that his desires, his word, and his will are more important than ours. As a matter of fact, he's the one that brings the greatest value to our marriages. It may surprise you to hear that we, both husbands and wives, are actually secondary in our marriages. And of course, you know, Chris and Ron just did that conference, so, you know, they've already explained all this to you. It is God who is primary in our marriages. It is God who is most to be valued and who should receive all the glory. So Dave Harvey and so the ones that they suggested for the conference was, um, what's the name of it? Do you guys remember? When, what, what did you say? I still, do. I still do. Okay, that's right. So I have been reading the other one, When Sinners Say I Do. And so from that book, which is a fabulous book, and I, I have to say I've read a lot of marriage books, and his is right up there about maybe the top I love his perspective. I love the way he's so engaging. Um, so I'd recommend it if, if you can get your hands on it. 
And I'm assuming those ones back there, but those are probably for people that have been married a little bit longer. But anyways, he wrote this. Marriage was not just invented by God. It belongs to God. It actually exists for him more than it exists for you and me and our spouses. Marriage is not first about me or my spouse. Obviously, the man and the woman are essential, but they are secondary. God is the most important person in a marriage. Marriage is for our good, but it is first and foremost for God's glory. And the problem is, is we forget that. And because we forget that, then we respond sinfully. So of course, we know this from an intellectual standpoint, right? Like, like mentally, we know these things. I doubt if there's any room, anyone, even in this room, that would say that her marriage is more important than, or that she is more important to her marriage than God receiving glory. We, we would say the right things, do we not? We know the right answers. We know what, what's, my, what, what's the thing that I'm supposed to be doing in my life? I'm supposed to be glorifying God. We all know this. And we say it, and it just kind of rolls off our tongue. But the problem is, is we don't live it because we don't really think about it like we ought to, and we don't fear God like we ought to. And so we become very sinful as it pertains to our marriages. It is true that when we become Christians, we are given a new... Sorry, I think I should start up here a little bit. It is true... Uh, sorry, in the same place again. Um, <clears throat> because our natural unredeemed position is one of pride, we often hold ourselves in higher esteem than we realize. It is true that when we become Christians, we are given a new heart, but that new heart doesn't automatically change our presuppositions, expectations, and thought patterns. It is through the process of sanctification that God works in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, guided by the scripture to teach us how to think and live in a manner that reflects the new heart that we already have. See, when we become Christians, we have been given a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. But then what do we spend the rest of our life trying to do? We spend the rest of our life trying to live who we are, and that is um, in a Christ-like manner. If we have a wrong understanding of God, ourselves, our husbands, our marriages, or even our roles within the marriage, we are going to fail to reflect God's glory in our marriages. Interestingly, one of the indicators that we have a wrong understanding of those things comes in the form of conflict. So, you know, when you get irritated and you can feel your heart start to get all tight because you did something you didn't like you're being sinful and then it you say something snappy and so then that starts some sort of argument or whatever our sin always leads no 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 i'm saying something i'm not meaning to say so I realize I have to stay so close to my notes because especially in, with the parenting Bible study and now with the marriage study, if I start drifting off, you say little things and nuances and then like you get in trouble because you didn't think it all the way through from all the angles before you said it. <laughs> so we just stick to our notes. So I thought what I would do here is I wanted to illustrate uh, to you an example from my own marriage, from my own life, from quite a few years ago, because I want you to see what, how when we respond sinfully, all the things 
that we are not taking into account when we respond. This is one little example. But I, what I want for you to be able to do is to think about your own marriage, your own life, and the things that you wrestle with, the areas that you have conflict with your husband or whatever sinful areas that, that you respond because what we're going to do is we're going to look through Scripture and evaluate and I disobeyed this scripture, and I disobeyed this scripture, and I disobeyed this scripture, all in one little example. But what I want to do tonight is just make this so incredibly practical because I want you to be able to walk out and really start to think about your own life and your own heart and to consider your own responses, your understanding of who God is and and your uh your understanding of who you are. And that is going to require a lot of thought and a lot of process to do that. If you want to have a marriage that glorifies God, you are going to have to take the time and spend the time to consider your responses, whether or not you are being obedient to scripture. So my example is basically just to help you work through that. What does this look like? If if I've had an, an conflict with my husband. Okay, so how can I think through the things that I need to think through, ways that I have displeased God, so that then what happens when the next thing comes along? I know where the pitfalls are, so this time I can respond in a way that pleases the Lord. So one summer when we still lived in California, my sister, who lived in Michigan, and I planned a camping trip together in Colorado. We both drove approximately 18 hours, meeting halfway in Estes Park, located in the picturesque Rocky Mountains. We had the most wonderful trip. It really was. It was, it was such a wonderful trip. The scenery was absolutely magnificent. The hikes were beautiful. The summer thunderstorms with their pounding rain and icy hail were exhilarating and refreshing. The stars in the night sky shone brilliantly. And the cool, crisp mountain air was absolutely invigorating. I loved every minute of our trip and literally dreaded traveling back to the stifling, hot, we lived in Southern California, the stifling, hot, grime-covered desert and smog-filled atmosphere of our L.A. suburban home. That's how I felt about living in L.A. I love the nature. I love the mountains. I love the green. I love the rain. You don't get any of that in Southern California. So anyways, that's just to set all this up. As is common in the mountains, each afternoon the clouds would build over our little campsite, emptying their contents in the form of a torrential downpour. The last afternoon of our vacation, the rain was holding off and wasn't expected until later in the evening. My sister and I were set to enjoy one last night chatting together by the campfire after we put the kids to bed. We could just sit there till late at night and enjoy being together because we hardly ever got to see each other when I'm in California and she's in Michigan. My sister, uh, we planned to get up before dawn the next morning, load up our supplies and drive home. Our husbands, however, were forming an entirely different plan. The coming storms drew their attention and they didn't relish the thought of sleeping through a soggy night of thunderstorms or packing our waterlogged camping gear in the dark the next morning. So conferring together, consorting and planning and talking, they decided it would be best to pack up immediately and head out while everything was still dry. Well, you can imagine how this was going to fly with me. Not so great. 
I was appalled, to put it mildly. How could they rob us of our last night together? Like, I really felt like I'd been stolen from. How could you do this? How could my husband make me leave the beauty of the mountains to descend back into our dismal city existence a night early? But he was resolute in his decision, and none of my pleading had any effect on his determination. Distraught, dejected, defeated, and heartbroken. Like, I'm not exaggerating how I felt, okay? (laughs) This is literally how I felt. Yes, it was all sinful. I understand that, but I'm just telling you. I stumbled into the tent and crumbled into a sobbing heap in absolute frustration and disappointment while he proceeded to dismantle the tent around me. (laughs) I sat there in a pile, crying. As the kids were running around outside and the tent is starting to come down on my head. In this moment, I wrongly assumed my marriage was about who? Me. All about me. I was more concerned with getting what I wanted than I was about pleasing God and bringing him glory in response to my husband. I wanted my own way so badly that I was unwilling to see the logical reason in my husband's decision. His consideration of the situation was well thought through and even wise, even if I had to think it was begrudgingly. Making an 18-hour trip home with soaking camping gear crammed into the back of the van and six pairs of shoes tracking mud into the car before daylight the next morning would have been an utter disaster. Not to mention, of course, it would have taken three times as long to pack everything up if it's soaking wet in the dark, right? I could see none of these reasons as significant enough to overthrow my selfish desire. Thus, I sinfully responded to my husband, essentially throwing an adult temper tantrum is really what it was. Because I wasn't getting what? I wasn't getting my own way. Because I had a wrong view of myself, I had a wrong view of my husband, I had a wrong view of God, and I had a wrong view of my role in the marriage in that situation. I viewed my desire and preferences as being most important. In my mind, they were, most, they were more important than my husband's wise decision, and they were also more important than God's will laid out for me in Scripture to be subject to my husband. I instead valued most highly what I wanted, and it was to get what I wanted above God receiving glory in my response. I was willing to act sinfully because I wasn't getting what I wanted. My sinful response was rooted in proud selfishness, which revealed my high opinion of myself and my preference. What was the result of my arrogant view of myself and my desires? Conflict in my marriage. Conflict, if you're experiencing conflict, is oftentimes the thing that indicates that there's sin going on in your life. How often are you in conflict with your husband, with your children, with other people? Because conflict is a little red flag that means you need to start paying attention. What is, is there sin going on? Most of the time when we're in conflict with other people, it's because there is probably sin. Maybe not always, but it's a good indicator of that. And so I had to think that through, of course, later. But now we're finally getting to your outline. So, capital A, seeking personal desires over God's glory harms marriage. When I have an inaccurate view of God and his will for my marriage, I will live in my marriage improperly. 
In my self-absorption that day, I lost sight of what was most important, which was bringing God glory through obedience to his word. Because God's glory and my husband's best interest were not my goal, I disobeyed many principles from scripture. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through the next point on your outline, and we're going to look at different verses. And just basically, I'm just going to help you see like what were all the, I mean, it wasn't all the places, but here's a good list of some of the places that I was sinful. Because I think it's important that we realize when we are in conflict with our husbands, when we are being selfish, there is usually a lot of, of principles from scripture that we are violating in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so we need to begin to be aware of that. So number one, seeking selfish pursuits over God's glory leads to evil. So James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, excuse me, unwavering without hypocrisy. So I wanted to define the word selfish ambition to you. So from Thayer's lexicon, it says this, it denotes a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. So that's kind of where it got, like how it's used in secular Greek with Aristotle. But Paul used the word in the context of putting yourself forward or being selfish And he uses that. We're actually going to look at Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And Paul uses it in that verse. Well, James uses it here as having the meaning of selfishness or self-promoting in your heart. So basically, what was happening in my heart? Self-promoting. I wanted what I wanted right then. And I did not get that. So because of that, then I was responding very sinfully. My heart was filled with selfish ambition, meaning there was selfishness and self-promoting in my heart, which resulted in disorder and disunity in our marriage at that moment. My sinful response drove a wedge in my relationship with my husband. I was not helpful. What is, what is my role in this marriage? To be the helpmate, right? So what should have I been doing? Helping him. What was I doing? Being a puddle and hindering what he was trying to do. And I was acting as a terrible example to my children. My children were watching what was going on. So this is one of those things. This is one of those stories. You know, you have those infamous stories in your family. Oh, great. Well, this is one of them. Yeah. Remember when mom fell apart when we left Colorado? How many years ago was that? Like, that was almost 20 years ago, and we still remember it. So number two, seeking personal pleasure over God's glory leads to conflict. So James 4.1 says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So again, we need to define our term here, which it's not that difficult. But pleasure means your strong desire for pleasure. So it's not just that you know you want your pleasures. You have this huge desire for it, an inordinate desire for it. So what was my desire? Another night with my sister, another night in beautiful Colorado, another night before I had to head back to L.A. So was my desire sinful in what it was? Was it wrong to want to stay in Colorado a night longer? No. What was the issue? 
I wanted it too much. And so because I desired it so much, that's where the sin came into play. So number three, no thought, word, or deed should be performed in selfishness or pride, according to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So remember I said that word selfishness that is used in James, selfish ambition, it's the same Greek word there. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So empty conceit then means vain glory, empty pride, groundless self-esteem. I thought that was interesting. Groundless self-esteem. No grounds for that at all. It's, it's useless. It's worthless. So according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, vainglory means undue elation of mind. So if you ever wondered what vainglory is, or I think we could you know, just do the trail of definitions there, but when he says empty conceit, really we're talking about undue elation of mind. We are puffed up in our own imagination, essentially. My attitude and action entirely stemmed from what? Selfishness and empty conceit, undue elation of my mind. How nice. My attitude and action entirely stemmed from selfishness and empty conceit rather than from a desire to bring God glory or to love my husband. And Paul tells us to do what? Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Absolutely nothing. Everything that we do should be motivated by what? Love, not selfishness and empty conceit. But for me, what was driving my response? Of course, selfishness. There was no love being exuded from me in any capacity in that moment at all toward my husband and toward my kids. Now, did, did my kids have anything to do with it? No, they were on the outskirts of all of this, but my sin still affected my children because what are they doing? Oh, well, they're learning that when mommy doesn't get what she wants, this is how she responds. Let's fall apart. Let's throw an adult temper tantrum. Let's cry. Let's not cooperate. So look at the domino effect going on here. All because... I was selfish and proud. Number four, neglecting biblical submission rejects God's designed rules. So Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this is, you know, the verse that we start to get a little uncomfortable with because now we brought in submission, which we will talk about later but we're going to lay a lot of groundwork first before we get there. So by the time we get there, you're not going to be upset. You're going to be like, oh, yes, I need to be more submissive. Well, we're praying for it, right? <laughs> okay, so because my heart was selfish, seeking to fulfill my own desire for pleasure, I was unwilling to come under my husband's wise judgment and God-given leadership. Instead, in that scenario, I rebelled against the role God had given him as my husband, and I rebelled against the role that God had given me. Is it not blowing your mind just a little bit? One scenario, one situation, and look at all the things that I was being disobedient to the word because I was selfish and proud. 
This is what we do to our marriages when we have a selfish, proud attitude. These are the things that we violate. And then we wonder, after we've done this for many years, why do I have a bad marriage? Because you, without even probably realizing it at times, are living according to your own selfish ambition and your own empty conceit, unwilling to be obedient to Scripture because you are more concerned about getting your own way than you are about giving glory to God. I mean, I stand like so convicted. Now, you guys just remember, as I stand up here and talk to you, I've been studying this for a while. So like the conviction is like layered and layered up here. So number five, sin destroys our Christ-like example. So 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So I've kind of already mentioned this, but in my sinful response, I was unable to encourage my kids to follow my example because I wasn't following Christ. I couldn't say, follow me. Like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I couldn't say that because I was doing anything but following Christ in that situation. Instead, I was teaching them that when you don't get what you want, you lose your self-control, you get angry, you cry, you feel sorry for yourself. You know, just continue on the list, all the things. So what is the ultimate result of our high view of ourselves? Our pride. Ultimately, it leads to destruction. So number six, proud rejection of God's word leads to destruction. Proverbs 6.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Disobedience to God's word is an act of pride. Ultimately, pride leads to destruction. So notice this next verse and how it states it. So the first one said, Pride goes before destruction. Now listen to this. This is Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. So what happens before we get to the destruction? Well, first it starts out with man having a haughty attitude, a haughty heart. But humility, it says, goes before honor. We don't often realize the little things, the little areas of sin are our biggest nemeses, especially in a church group like this. It's the little areas of sin that erode our marriages and our parenting and ultimately our homes. There could be some of you maybe who struggle with bigger areas of sinfulness, but often it is the little things. Like impatience when your husband doesn't help you with the dishes, especially when you know that he can see that they need to be done. That makes it even worse, right? It's discontentment with the role God has given you, which includes waking up through the night with kiddos when your husband gets to sleep. I remember feeling like that at times. I'd give anything to have a full night of sleep. He gets to sleep every night. I tell him myself, my goodness, I was very sinful. It's jealousy that he gets to go to work. And you have to stay home to change diapers and clean toddler messes or maybe to homeschool difficult children or maybe even as we're getting older, having to care for aging parents. It's grumbling and complaining because he doesn't prioritize spiritual leadership in the home the way you think he should because we have standards for how we think our husbands ought to be godly and spiritual, right? And if they don't meet our 
little criteria and we can't check off all the boxes, then we get irritated and that can even turn into bitterness. It's being unthankful for the husband God has given you because you compare him with her husband. Wickedness. It's the bitterness that has grown in your heart toward areas of sin in his life. So as he is lazy and struggles with that, or he is angry and struggles with that, or he's complacent, then in our hearts, you know, in the beginning, yeah, we worked on forgiveness. But when he continues to do it again and again and again, you know, we get really sick of having to practice forgiveness. And so in the end, if we're not guarded, those little seeds of bitterness start to grow in our hearts and take root in our hearts. So what I want you to understand is that these little sins, and uh, Jerry Bridges, I think he refers to them as respectable sins. Some of them he would refer to as respectable sins. They're the ones that, eh, you know, we all do them. It's not that. I need to work on being more thankful. I know. I'm not really that content. I need to be more content. Unthankfulness is a characteristic of unbelievers. Discontentment is wickedness because it is against what the Word of God says. These little things are very, very important. In the same way that my sinful response to leaving the camping trip was rooted in not getting my own way, these little things spring from the same underlying sin. They are born in pride and coddled in selfishness. When these things become habitual patterns, a way of life, you will eventually destroy your home. Meaning, when I say your home, your marriage and your family. So number seven, Disobedience to scripture will destroy your marriage and family. So Proverbs 14.1 says this. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. The foolish woman tears her home down with what? Her own selfish pride. Her own selfish ambition, her own haughtiness. And many times she doesn't even know she's doing it until it's too late. And even then she may still not recognize her own contribution to the collapse of her marriage and family because she doesn't, understand, me, she doesn't understand how important humility and obedience to God's word are, even in the little things, or maybe I should say, especially in the little things. Because her primary goal is not focused on God's glory, her priorities and desires become skewed ultimately resulting in selfish pride. This is where we have to truly guard our hearts. And this is oftentimes why we find ourselves resistant to some of the things that we read in marriage books. Because when we feel the conviction of God's word as we read those things on the, the pages of those books or we study it, we don't want to deal with the conviction. Why? because we are selfish and we are proud. And especially if our husband is less than perfect. Do any of you have a perfect husband? Not one of us has a perfect husband. And so if we are always focusing on his sinfulness, 
we are not going to take responsibility for our own sin. And that's what I really want for us to think about is we are responsible for our own sin. And we can't be pointing a finger, always looking at our husband. We'll all change when he changes because that can tend to be our attitude. And what is that rooted in? Selfishness and pride. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. God's word does not lie. If we sow pride and selfishness and sinful responses to the people and circumstances in our lives, we will reap corruption and destruction. Now, I'm not saying as believers we're going to reap hell. That's not what I'm saying. But as we already read in Proverbs, the foolish woman tears her, hand, her home down with her own hands. And the problem is, is we can justify our sin. And that's what we get good at doing. We justify the way we act because we are so focused on him rather than on us. The natural question then we need to ask is, how do I keep from sowing the sin that produces corruption and destruction? So capital B on your outline is, we need to live in the fear of the Lord. So I'm just going to go through a few verses just really quick here. And these are part of your outline. And then give you a definition for the fear of the Lord. And I realize I'm not probably telling you anything tonight that you don't already know, but I am so thankful. And I know I say this frequently, but I'm thankful that Peter said, I stir you up by way of reminder. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not telling you a whole bunch of new things, maybe that you've never heard before, but sometimes hearing them in a new context or hearing them from a different perspective is helpful for us. So that's what I'm trying to do. So number one, the fear of the Lord keeps us from being sinful. So Proverbs 16, 6 says this, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps from evil. So what is it that keeps us from evil? The fear of the Lord. So number two, the fear of the Lord results in hatred for our sin. So Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And then number three, refusing to fear the Lord results in destruction. So this is essentially saying what I've already said, just a different verse here. But Proverbs 28, 14 says this, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And this is what we want to guard ourselves against is having a hard heart. We want a tender and sensitive heart to the things of scripture because obviously we will reap what we sow. And if we're sowing sinfulness into our homes, into our marriages, into our families, we are going to reap the destruction that comes with that. If we consider the illustration of my sinful response to leaving our camp trip early, what conclusion is it that we can draw? Ultimately, in that situation, I did not fear God the way I should have. 
And how do I know that? Because what did those verses tell us? If I would have feared God, I would have hated evil. But I was not fearing God, therefore I loved my sin in that moment more than I feared God. And so this is why I'm having you go through Psalms for your homework to help you grow in your fear of the Lord because as you grow in your fear of the Lord, you will grow in your hatred of sin. And yes, it's hatred of sin everywhere, but hatred of sin in your own heart and in your own life. So we need to look at the definition of fear. The word fear means dreadful, exceeding fearfulness or reverence. And I, I always include this whenever I give a definition for the fear of God because I love how John MacArthur puts this. He says, The fear of the Lord is a state of mind in which one's own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's. So let me say that again. It's... It's a state of mind in which my attitudes, my will, my, oh, oh, here's a big one, feelings. We like our feelings, don't we? My feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's, for God's attitude, God's will, God's feeling, God's deeds, and God's goals. A true fear of the Lord, that's where it leads. That's what our lives ought to look like. If we fear the Lord, our lives are going to mirror the character of God. So when I have you filling out on your little homework paper the characteristics of God, now some of them, of course, we can't be. We can't be eternal. Yeah, we are, I guess, not in the same sense. See, this is why I have to stick to my notes because you never know what I might say. But there are certain characteristics, obviously, that we aren't going to be able to um, be like God, like omnipresent, obviously. But loving, kind, gracious, these things about God. So by fearing God, we will have reverence and awe for God that will motivate us to please him in everything we do. Our own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals will be replaced with God's attitudes, will, and goals. A true fear of the Lord will transform our lives so that we entirely live for the will and glory of God. This reverential fear will inspire us to purge sin from our lives so that we will be conformed to the will of God, seeking to obey him in all things. Jerry Bridges wrote this. The fear of the Lord is an invigorating and guiding principle that deeply affects every area of our lives, and it determines the way that we live. John Murray wrote this, The fear of God is the soul of godliness. And Jerry Bridges goes on to explain, That means the fear of God is the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life. It is the wellspring of all godly desires and aspirations. Do you desire to be a godly person? Then you must understand and grow in the fear of the Lord. So as God's children, it should be our greatest desire to honor and obey him because of his awesome transcendent majesty. He loved us by sending his son to die for us and give us what? Eternal life, 
salvation. This knowledge of his love for us should produce in us a love for God that motivates us to bring him the glory that is due his name. It should stir our hearts to a desire to put away sin in our lives and live in obedience to God's word. And R.C. Sproul wrote this, the fear, it is the fear of dishonoring him and failing to respect and adore him, which is at the heart of the spiritual pilgrimage of every believer. And I loved how he worded that because it's coming at it from a little bit different perspective, right? The fear of displeasing the Lord. When we love God, when we love Christ, we do not want to displease him. And when we, this is why as, as believers, we continually focus on the gospel. We come back to the gospel over and over and over again, reminding ourselves of what God did when he sent his son to bear the wrath of God in my place so that I could be free from sin and I could be holy before God. And it is that knowledge that drives me to love God and is that love for God that drives my obedience for him. Does that make sense? So why do we study the word of God? So that we know who God is. Why do we study the character of Christ? So that we understand Christ was God in human form, right? So we seek to know our God so that we will not be sinful, so that we will be sensitive to his word and desire to please him. We can conclude that the less we fear God, the more sinful we are. Flip that on its head. The more we fear God, I already said that, right? The the more we fear God, the more sinful we are. The more we fear God, the less sinful we are. So I wrote that weird, (laughs) which isn't the first time, is it? The less we fear God, the more sinful we are, is what I'm trying to say. Sorry. My problem back to our little example again, was that I didn't have a proper view of God. If I would have had a greater fear, a greater reverence, a greater awe of the glory and majesty of God, I would have had a greater hatred for my sin, which would have resulted in humility, kindness, submission, and helpfulness to my husband. If I would have had a proper view of God, I would not have sinned against my husband at all. But I did not have a proper view of God. And so what happened? Instead, I had a love affair with my own desires, basically, which led to total sin. Paul Tripp wrote this. I have become more and more persuaded that marriages are fixed vertically before they are fixed horizontally. We have to deal with what is driving us before we ever deal with how we are reacting to one another. Did you catch what he said? We have to deal with what's driving us. What are our motives? What is driving this sinful attitude? What is driving this conflict that I'm in right now? What's going on in my heart? So if we never stop to contemplate and consider what's going on in our own hearts, our marriages aren't going to improve very much because we have to look at what the motives are 
and we need to recognize the sin and repent of the sin and seek to put it off and renew our minds in the truth of God's word, fill our minds with God's word so that then we are able, we know what we should be doing instead, and then we can act out the things we should be doing. So if you remember that little list that I said, so I was, I was being very sinful in all these other ways, all those, that list that I, that I mentioned to you guys, if I would have been focused on what I should have been doing, putting on holiness and godliness, I would have been focusing on being humble. I would have been focusing on being kind. I would have been focusing on submitting to my husband and what he felt like was best. I would have been being helpful. And if I would have been focused on those things and pleasing the Lord, guess what? I would have never even thought about doing the other things because my mind would have been so filled with what I should have been doing. But it wasn't, clearly. And so instead, I was being very sinful. What did I believe about God in that situation? I believe that my desire, my opinion, and my preference were of greater value, greater significance, and more important than God's will. I was idolizing my preference more than I was reverencing God. In that moment, my view of God had grown very, very small. And fulfilling my personal pleasure had become the dominant drive for my thoughts, my desires, my words, and my actions. Getting what I wanted had become what? It had become an idol to me. So see on your outline, we need to destroy the idols. So here is a simple way to define an idol, perhaps. It's anything I'm willing to sin to get, sin to keep, or sin if I lose. Basically, whenever I don't get my own way, there's usually some form of an idol there, and so I am sinful because I didn't get what I wanted or, you know, whatever the other things were there. Idolatry always produces sin in our hearts because it replaces worship of God and reverence for Him. It supplants the fear of God in our hearts. Christopher Ashe wrote in a book called Marriage for God, If I pursue any goal except the honor of God, then I am worshiping an idol. And idols are empty, vacuous, disappointing things that have no power to help me. Surprisingly, the key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. See, this is sometimes where we get really confused because we think we need to spend more and more time together and we need to have more date nights. And that might be true, but first we need to focus on whether or not we are pleasing God. Remember what he was saying, we need to fix our hearts vertically before we can fix our relationships horizontally. Our, marriage are not, our marriages are not ultimately about us. They are about God's glory. The more we reflect the character of Christ in our lives, the more our marriages will thrive. As we begin our study here, we need to understand that the smallest sinful attitude, motive, word, or deed is an affront to our holy God, and it is ultimately harmful to our marriages. Our sin is always going to be harmful and destructive. Whether you have decided, excuse me, whether you have deceived yourself into thinking that your sin isn't that bad, or whether you acknowledge that you have habitual glaring sin patterns toward your husband, you need to evaluate your own heart. 
We must all take responsibility for our own sin against a holy God and seek to please him, rooting out and casting off the sin. So I'm guessing in here, I don't know who's been married the longest, but I'm guessing that the length of marriages in this room spans from maybe even just a few months all the way to probably three or four decades. And yet, guess what? The goal is the same for all of us. It doesn't matter whether we've been married a week or whether we've been married 40 years. Our goal is the same, that we would bring glory to God in our marriages. If we are going to grow in godliness in our marriages, it's going to take intentional work. We are going to need to evaluate our motives, like I already said. We will need to ask if we are seeking to glorify God or if we're seeking to get our own way. When we have sinful attitudes and responses to our husbands, we will need to consider what is at the root of our desires. Always going to the root. What is driving it? Because if you have a short fuse and you get mad really easily, you need to figure out what's driving that anger. What is it that is triggering me to get mad? Because clearly there is some sort of sin there that is triggering my anger. And it's probably rooted in some form of selfishness and pride. You didn't get what you wanted. And sometimes you have to evaluate, okay, so why am I angry? Why does this even bother me? Why do I care? And then trace it. Is it because you didn't get your own way? Is it because you were fearful? Is it because you have the fear of man? Because you can't deal with it properly if you don't recognize what it is that your anger is stemming from. And this is whether it's anger or laziness or discontentment, whatever it is, we need to identify what are the idols. Because remember, we sin because of the idols in our hearts. So we want to identify what those idols are. So I realize marriage is made up of two people, not just one person. And in order for a marriage to truly reflect the beauty of Christ in the church, of course, it will never be perfectly because we're sinful, but both spouses must choose to be conformed to the image of Christ. So you might even wonder if it's even really useful to be here. If you're coming to a Bible study on marriage, you're going to learn all this stuff and your husband isn't going to hear any of it. And so you're going to be trying to do all this hard work and okay, that's just not fair. But actually there's a really great value in you being here. And that's because, you know what, as you work on your own heart and your own life, ultimately you're responsible to God, right? You will stand before God one day and give an account of your life and your heart. And he will do that as well. And so as we strive to be holy and godly, we please God, and that needs to be our goal. See, that's why this whole giving God glory in our marriages is so important, because if that is truly our desire, we will realize that our right responses, our right attitude, our right heart pleases the Lord, and God is glorified in that, regardless of whether or not our husband is learning the same thing as us or not. So here are 
a couple of reasons why it's useful for you to be here without your husband. So number one, sin makes suffering or struggles worse. Our sin always makes the challenges we are facing much worse. Sin either destroys a good thing or exacerbates existing sin. If you are struggling in your marriage, you need to understand that your sinful response will only make your struggle worse. And I know when you are wrestling with difficult trials and in marriage, because we're talking about marriage, when you are dealing with difficult things, it is very, very hard not to respond sinfully. But you need to understand this. When you respond sinfully, you make the problem, the issue, the circumstance much, much, much worse. And you have to believe me when I say that. This is one of the reasons why it's so important that we respond rightly because we're not going to add sin upon sin upon sin. And number two, eliminating your sin gives your husband the greatest opportunity to change. By living according to God's word, you offer your husband the greatest opportunity to make changes in his own life. And here's what I mean by that. You remove the obstacles of sin in your own life that act as a stumbling block to him. And you also eliminate the option of him focusing on your sin, which enables a greater opportunity for him to not identify his own sin. So to say that maybe a little bit more concisely, when he cannot point to your sin, his sin becomes more evident. Now, you got to be careful because we don't try and be holy so that he'll see his sin, doggone it. <laughs> we are holy because that pleases the Lord. We strive not to sin so that God is honored and glorified. But as we do that, we give our husbands the greatest opportunity to change as well. So you being here actually could have a massively huge effect on your husband, even if he isn't here. So anyways, I hope that that's been a little bit helpful tonight, kind of explaining all the different areas of sin, because this is so important. And even as we start here, just as an introduction tonight, we have to take responsibility for our own hearts and our own lives. And so that's why I wanted to start with this, because if we don't take responsibility, if we have this attitude that we're going to come and we're going to learn about marriage and we're going to fix our husband, then you know what? You're not going to do your marriage one ounce of good. You're probably only going to harm it even more. And so we need to recognize that we need to be holy and righteous before the Lord. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for the privilege it is to be here tonight. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that you help us to see areas of sin in our hearts and in our lives. Father, I thank you that you are a redemptive God and that even in our sin, you give us opportunity to repent. You give us opportunity to, to strive, to be holy, to please you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us as we come here week after week, that we would seek to please you in the way that we live our lives in our marriages, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our words, that it would be our growing desire to live 
in the fear of the Lord, and that it would truly be our desire to give you honor and glory. In your name I pray, amen.